I'm Ian, and I'm a priest. And I'm David, and I'm an organist. And this is All Things Right and Musical. And today we begin our special podcast series looking into the book Elements of Right by Aidan Kavanaugh. Aidan Kavanaugh was a Roman Catholic priest. Um, he was uh, associated with the Arch Abbey of St. Meinrad in southern Indiana, and he also um, was associated with uh, the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale University. And in fact, I think he chaired the Institute for a time. That, that could that could be right. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a He's a pretty well-known um, author among sort of liturgy nerds like us. I, I, sure. I think it's safe to say. Is that is that your impression? Yes, and and most famous in particular for this text, for Elements of Right, a handbook of liturgical style. He's he has written some other things, but this is this is by far um, his I think his most popular and most sort of universally popular. Yeah, because this feels. I mean, this feels very. Um, easy and digestible. I mean, it's a, right. um, I think the comparison that was made when someone told me about it was it's kind of like Strunk and White's Elements of Style, but for liturgy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, it, it, the book is about the same, the same shape and the same size. And um, I also really enjoy <laughs> opening Strunk and White. <laughs> uh-huh. And I also really enjoy opening this book. Yeah. And, and I think that's actually a really, really good comparison because it is, it's not a, it's not a, liturgical manual exactly Mm -hmm. but it is sort of a style guide Mm -hmm. and and with everything that that entails exactly yeah meaning you are getting one perspective it's a it's it's definitely an informed perspective he's put a great deal of thought into this but it doesn't it's not like a universal law right Mm -hmm. just because it's written here doesn't mean that you have to agree um, but it, but it is a, it is a pretty good jumping off point, just like Strunk and White. Exactly. So we're going to begin at the very, uh, beginning, which as Julie Andrews always reminds us is a very good place to start. Um, and the first section of this book is called elementary rules of liturgical usage. And, um, these are, these are numbered. So number one is avoid disorder and last minute makeshift. Yes. Yeah. I think I, it's hard to disagree with that thesis. I think so. I, you know, the, but this is the this is the thing, right? Um, so it, this is a. Um, I always, anytime there's something like this that gives a hard and fast rule, I always want. I always wonder what are the exceptions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because there almost always are, and there are, <clears throat> there are congregations that have whole worship services where like parts of the liturgy, including lectors, lay Eucharistic ministers are assigned when people show up in the morning. Right. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I think that would obviously go against rule number one mm-hmm. in Aidan Kavanaugh's book. Right. Yeah. And I'm, and I think, you know, it's good to point out like the result that you get from having a lector rota and readings that are sent out to people. And, you know, you know, weeks in advance that you're reading a lesson and what lesson you're reading versus the result that you get when, you know, people walk in, pick up a bulletin and, Oh, by the way, um, will you read the second lesson for us today? 
Right. I mean, especially because I, I, I had this experience recently where the lesson was from Romans and, and ironically, like the person said, Oh, I love that lesson. And, mm-hmm. and the celebrant kind of laughed at them and they're like, no, I'm, I'm being serious. Like I, I quote this to myself all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so sure enough, like, you know, this person who was just asked five minutes before the start of the liturgy actually did a really lovely reading of the lesson from Romans. But right. I think more often than not, that's not the case you get with that kind of situation. No, I th- and I think that's true. And I think that's where this, it, it, sometimes it's helpful to ask when he states these rules as just ironclad rules, it helps to ask why, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And the why is because sometimes if you throw it together last minute, it feels thrown together last minute, right? Right, sure. Um, the services that I have in mind, the, 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 the churches that I'm talking about, did this primarily with family services, mm-hmm, right? Exactly. Um, and so it's usually families and particularly children who are claiming various ministries in the liturgy mm. the morning of, right? right? Okay. And what you gain from that is flexibility, l- lessened anxiety for kids who are participating. And yeah, you're sacrificing maybe some cleanliness, for lack of a better word, about the, the, the or crispness in the liturgy. Maybe it's messier, right? Right. But for a family service that is intended to be casual, if it has some imperfections, is it worth that trade-off? I can I can see cases in which it might be. Yeah, right? and and I think that's probably we're probably picking up on a theme that we'll encounter throughout this book. Is that mm-hmm. this this sort of applies to, you know, the principal service in most places? I think the way he's conceiving of this kind of right. thing, right? That you know, when he writes a rule like this, he doesn't really have in mind the uh the family service that happens in the chapel or or wherever it happens right yeah but yeah so as it i mean as a general rule yes you don't want it to be disordered you don't want it to be overly chaotic you don't want to be you don't want there to be confusion about who's supposed to be doing what yeah. that sort of stuff and you know coming coming at this from the musical side yeah, boy, there's nothing that can take the wind out of your sails <laughs> musically if, oh, what chant are we singing? Oh, we forgot right. we forgot to rehearse that. Let's just do that really quickly right now. Right. And you know, and it happens. Like I've I've been there, I've done that, I've I've inflicted that on my choir as re- as recently as this past Sunday, perhaps. Uh-huh. But right. um it's not what we want. And yeah, it, it is it is certainly a tendency to be um avoided, as he says. Yeah. 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 Right, so number two, keep the various liturgical ministries clearly distinct. Mm-hmm. I have to be honest, I don't really know what he means by this. It, when, when he boils it down, the last sentence that he writes under this, under this item, uh, liturgical ministers should never be seen to do in the liturgy what they are not regularly seen to do outside the liturgy. That, that just kind of makes my head spin a little bit. Like, what is he, what is he trying to get at here? So it's not, this isn't, I I agree, this is not perfectly clear, right? Yeah. Um, But I think what he's talking about is preserving the different orders of ministry within the liturgy. Okay. In other words, 
And this is this is something that we in the Episcopal Church are not always good at, particularly because most congregations, I think, I think it's fair to say most Episcopal congregations do not have a deacon, right? Mm, sure, yeah. If you have a deacon, then a priest should not be doing the diaconal parts of the liturgy, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, and I think that that has been the case at various points in time, right? Um, I think, I think that's what he's talking about. Okay. Yeah. It's a little bit frustrating to me because if that is what he's talking about, Mm -hmm. I kind of wish he would just come out and say that. Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's possible that he also, I mean, that he also thinks, I don't know. So it's a live question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the questions that's facing a lot of churches is what do we do with congregations that do not have a priest? Sure, yeah. Um, and especially in the wake of liturgical reform, in the wake of the liturgical movement, in the wake of successes of associated parishes and the, the 1979 prayer book, mm-hmm. where we say the Eucharist is what we do on Sunday mornings. Mm, okay. What happens to a congregation where you literally cannot do that without breaking canon law yeah right? and and maybe maybe um aiden kavanaugh speaks to that in the midst of this when he says um the common end for which the diverse liturgical ministries work is not a ceremony mm-hmm. but a corporate life so he might be he might be trying to i mean he, he might be providing some some kind of framework for this circum this very circumstance that you know in a situation where you find yourself short-staffed um, you're not supposed to just do the Eucharist no matter what, because um, you're not your common end is not a ceremony, but right. life together. So you know if if you need to do morning prayer, you should do morning prayer. Right. Yeah. Is that am I off base there? Is, is that kind of what is that kind of the tone that he's trying to get across here? I I, I think I I'll be honest with you. This this one is less clear to me. Um, yeah, it is baffling. I th- I, it's, I mean, it's possible that he's speaking to something as, as basic. And, and this is where the contexts differ, right? Mm-hmm. The reality is Roman Catholic liturgy has much more clearly defined liturgical roles and a much more clearly defined liturgical hierarchy mm-hmm. than your average Episcopal church. Sure. And I, yeah, I, 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 I agree with that point, definitely. But it, still, that, that I come back to that last sentence. Uh, they shouldn't do in the liturgy what they're not doing outside of the liturgy. I mean, I don't go to the grocery store and see like a boat boy and somebody, you know, <laughs> swinging incense in the cereal aisle. Like right. you, you can swing incense in the, in the liturgy and like not do it. out. Like, like I still don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. So anyway, I'm okay to sort of leave that open and um, let our listeners kind of inform us what they think his intent really with this really is. Yeah. yeah. I, th- I, I, and I, I think it has to do with, and, and you see this. So one of the, one of the ways that might be going against this, right. Is in Episcopal churches. It is very common, especially like say at an early service that has a lower number of people in attendance mm-hmm. to have a lay Eucharistic minister who is also the lector, who is also the intercessor. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, those are three distinct roles. Sure. Would it be better to have those roles split so that they it is more clear what we're doing in those moments? Maybe. I can certainly make that argument, but it's not always possible, right? 
Yeah. And then that's interesting because, you know, in our current context, we are kind of getting back to that question of, of staffing, of staffing the liturgy. Right. That, yeah, yeah. That, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile maybe not having enough people for the roles that you want? And also this idea of keeping the liturgical ministries clearly distinct. Right. Yeah. Those two things, those two things may not necessarily be reconcilable. Right. Yeah. liturgical minister must serve the assembly. So like to go from one that I couldn't quite decipher to this one, it's like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh-huh. <laughs> that seems like a really basic proposition. It, uh, it does. Um, and yet I think I, I would, <laughs> I would venture a guess that this is the most often violated of Aidan Kavanaugh's rules, mm. um, and and this is this isn't exactly what he says explicitly, um, but I, I don't want to point fingers at any clergy. Okay, you can you can pick on organists. Then go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the same is true of organists, but but look at it this way. We all have our own particular style of worship that we prefer. Mm-hmm. We all have our own um, particular preferences when it comes to liturgical style, when it comes to liturgical texts, when it comes to hymns, when it comes to anthems, when it comes to musical styles. Everybody's got their own particular preferences, mm-hmm. right? Right. When you are serving a particular assembly, when you are working for in, 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 in ministry with a particular congregation, a particular church, the question is not necessarily, what's my preference? Yeah, you're right. This is, this is really the, the spirit of what he's writing about here. I, th- I think so. I think so. And and I see this, I mean, I've seen this violated on the musical side for sure. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Like you have mm-hmm. plenty of organists or choir directors who don't recognize, I mean, the most common example is not recognizing the limitations of a particular choir, mm-hmm. for example, right? Mm-hmm. Like not every choir is a 16 member um, capable of really intricate polyphony, mm-hmm. right? Right. Which means... You can't always do rudder in every congregation, right? Sure. Or you, you know, maybe that's not the best example. But there are certain things that you can't always that you that that just aren't good fits mm-hmm. for certain congregations, and you have to be realistic about that. Now, ideally, maybe the best the best possible solution is you wind up in a in a congregation where your preferences align with what the what the preferences of the assembly and their abilities are. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But I also see this with a lot of priests where they are, for example, particularly high or particularly low church, and they come into a congregation that isn't necessarily that, but try to steer them in that direction. 
right? Yeah. Well, and th- and that's something I'm starting to think about here is um, this this does sort of this does sort of ask the the liturgical minister, and he he gives an example about someone presiding over the liturgy. But I think, yeah, this could also equally apply to musicians, as we talked about, mm-hmm. um, that they need to be sensitive to the assembly where they have gathered and not the ideal assembly that they have in their mind. Um, and yet, you know, isn't, isn't there, isn't there kind of a middle ground where you can start to move an assembly in a certain direction if you think it's right? You know, if you wanted to move them in a more high church direction, or if you wanted to move a a choir into a more polyphonic direction. Um, Yeah. I just, I just think you have to have some very, I think you need to have some very convincing reasons and you need to do some serious introspection around that before you start moving someone in that direction, mm-hmm. right? right? It's not that you can't. It's not that it's bad all the time. It's not that people don't need to be challenged or, or sort of guided in particular spiritual ways. But especially if you think what's best for this congregation just happens to coincide with what you like best, I think... I think you need to do some serious self-inquiry to, yeah. to really truly discern. You probably need to take a hard look at that. Right. The, the, right. Ana- the analogy that he uses at the end of this is, um, he says, the artistry of a good cook is more important than any recipe ever written. And I think that, that makes a lot of sense to me, that a, a sensitive liturgical minister, be it someone who's a liturgist or someone who's a, mu- a musician, you know, is going to take the ingredients that they have and form something really good rather than, oh, well, this is what I was taught in music in music school was really good. We need to be doing this and not that. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's the kind of sensitivity that he's, right. that he's trying to elicit. And there may be very compelling reasons to end up doing that at the end of that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. But I just think I just think very frequently um, leaders, liturgical leaders don't examine the idea that they're that they are there to inflict their personal piety on a congregation. Mm, yeah, that's interesting, because I think we can all point to cases where we sort of feel like that's been done. Yeah, yeah. I think I think everybody's been there, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I think that's what this rule is getting at: is you are not you are not you are not lifted up as a liturgical leader or a liturgical minister to use his terminology because everything that you decide is right. Right. Um, I don't want to beat a dead horse or like reopen an old wound. Okay. Um, to use two really graphic, um, uh, what are those called? <laughs> phrases. What, what are those phrases called? Metaphors. Yeah. To, to use, to use two really graphic metaphors. But, um, the whole debate over morning prayer in the Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. you know, th- that might be one of the cases where it felt like um, when that was done away with in various congregations, mm-hmm. you know, was it the liturgical minister enforcing his or her own personal preferences or or even sort of acting out, acting on behalf of what they thought was the preference of the wider Episcopal Church? Sure. Yeah. No, and that's and that's possible. I do think there were good reasons behind that transition being made, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. There was a great deal of thought and debate and, and conversation and thinking that was put into shifting from morning prayer of a Sunday to Sunday morning being 
Holy Eucharist. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Just, um, but, but that's that's the kind of thing where this would come into conflict. I mean, because he he yes. talks about he is trying to talk about a, an assembly's tradition of liturgical worship, right. and I think in in our denomination, you know, there was no sort of more unique and, and highly highly regarded tradition of liturgical worship than sure than the morning prayer tradition. No, I I agree. And I think, yeah, I think the the hope even then was that that morning prayer wouldn't just disappear, and in fact, it did, mm-hmm. right? You mean um, on Sundays or just in general in general from the life of the church? I, I, I both. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I think we're we're kidding ourselves if we think a lot of people were doing morning prayer outside of Sunday mornings, right? Um, you know, some people were, and some congregations were, but mm-hmm. I don't think that was a majority. Mm-hmm. Um, so morning prayer was really just preserved as a Sunday morning only thing. And if that's the case, yes, it's an Anglican distinctive, but is it is it really doing what it's intended to do if you're doing literally one-fourteenth of the daily office? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I, like I say, there are exceptions to that, but but anyway, that's all just to say... You can. I think that argument can be made, and you're absolutely right to raise it. Um, I do think that's the type of thing that most people put some thought into. It was in certain places just sort of flatly imposed, and mm-hmm. maybe that's not for the best. Um, but I think that there were at least good reasons for doing so. Yeah, sure. Right? This is an interesting one. Min- uh-huh. Ministers must not clericalize the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, especially the latter part of this, is very much a Roman Catholic concern. This is not necessarily something that a lot of Episcopal churches worry about. No, but but it is something I've seen, mm-hmm. especially at especially at like a big diocesan or right or cathedral service. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You'll have a lot of concelebrants mm-hmm. up at the altar, and it gets very crowded very quickly. Yes. And so, why, like, why liturgically is that not desirable? Well, so the, uh, the the argument for doing that is that this is the work of the entire assembly, mm-hmm. right? And the priests are the ones who are set aside within the assembly, not set above the assembly, but set aside within it in order to do this particular work, right? Mm-hmm. So when this particular work is done, the argument goes, it's good to have everyone who's who does that work doing that work, uh, right? Okay. That's the argument. Mm-hmm. In practice, the 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 what it ends up lending itself to in terms of interpretation is, look at all those important people up there. Ah, uh, and that's right? that's the kind of clericalization that he's trying to. I think so. Argue against, yeah. Yeah, I think it, it, it's and and <laughs> what's interesting about this and one of the things that I really think about a lot is. To what degree have we inadvertently clericalized the liturgy by having celebration facing the people rather than 
quote unquote eastward facing. Oh, interesting. That when when the priest faces the altar uh, mm-hmm. in, in the same direction as the people. Exactly. That there is kind and of I, there is kind of a more corporate sense about it in, in the sense that everyone is physically oriented the same way. Right. And everyone is facing toward the altar. In other words, sort of facing towards where the presence of God is 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 most properly localized. Right. right? Um, and that by by turning the other way, it kind of makes it more, I don't know, for lack of a better word, performative, because you're sort of facing, um, you're making eye contact then with, with some number of people exactly. in the assembly. And, and, and a lot of people like that. And I'm not saying that their preferences are wrong. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will tell you that makes it feel more personal, mm-hmm. right? But it makes it feel, I mean, is our liturgy really meant to be personal? Mm-hmm meaning from person to person or interpersonal, right? right? Is the liturgy something that happens between the celebrant and the people? In this case, literally? (laughs) Right. Or is it something that happens between the entire assembly and God? Yeah, that's another part of that orientation, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. the, the elements themselves become placed between the celebrant and the people. Right. Uh, whereas in the other orientation, uh, it's sort of like the elements are placed between the entire assembly, the celebrant, and on the other side of that equation is God, if you will. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I'm not in an eastward facing altar congregation. I think they would absolutely rebel if I tried to do that. So I am not see, trying to do that. See <laughs> rule number three, the liturgical exactly. minister must serve the assembly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> and yet... I think that there I think that one could make the argument that it makes it more clericalist. It makes it more centered on who the cleric is to have them on the other side of the altar facing us. Yeah. No, it's an interesting it's an interesting argument and something I might look at, you know, when you sort of make that case is actually lighting. Um, mm-hmm. that, you know, we've, we've probably lit, we've had to like redo the lighting in places where the altar has been moved yeah. to the crossing or to the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, there is actually kind of a spotlight on the celebrant in those moments. And I think, you know, in, um, I, I would hazard a guess here that, um, in places that have retained eastward facing celebration, mm-hmm. there probably never was a spotlight kind of effect to, to the same degree. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, and the only case in which there would be is if it was it was let's say that that their ceiling there was raised and it was difficult to put overhead lighting and so they put spots so that that area could be lit. Yeah, just right. Face, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. Not spotlights like performance lighting. Yeah, I don't know. I might I might be I, I might be making some something up, but. It's a it's a hypothesis anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of All Things Right and Musical. If you've enjoyed this episode, the first in our Elements of Right series, we hope you will tell us about it. You can find us on the web at writeandmusical.org. That's spelled R-I-T-E and musical.org. You can always send us an email at writeandmusical at gmail.com. A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.